Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Well, this morning we have the privilege of studying a man whose name you may not even be familiar with, which is kind of cool because that's why they're unlikely heroes, people you may not have heard of before. I would probably surprise you if I tell you that his name is mentioned way more in the Bible than the bulk of the disciples, at least by name. We know James, John, and Peter. We see their names throughout the Gospels. But some of the other disciples, we don't hear that much about. We, we know that he's with them, that Jesus is with them. But this is a, name, a man whose name is mentioned nearly 30 times in the Bible. And his name is, are you ready for this? Zerubbabel. Now, just try saying that with me, all right? Zerubbabel. One more time. Yeah, some of you are saying, I don't know that name. I don't know how to say it, okay? So hopefully by the end of the morning, you're going to be familiar with some things about his life. And he teaches us some amazing things. And not only does he teach us those things, but here's what I love about the Bible. While these passages will sound archaic when you read them, they are filled with incredible truths for you and me actually today. Right? So that's where we're going to get started. I know you were just seated, but out of respect for the word, will you stand with me? And I will be reading from the book of Ezra, chapter 1, uh, down through about verse 7 or so. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all were about them, aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. And they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, and they came with, and you know his name now, say it with me. Zerubbabel, that's right. Then you may be seated. Let me teach you three things. Some of you are probably saying right now, I have no idea why that passage is relevant to the world in which I live, okay? And I'm hoping you were thinking that because I want to show you how it is. There's three things we're going to learn this morning about the life of Zerubbabel, and they go like this. Find out, step out, watch out, okay? Find out, step out, watch out. So these two sections over here, I want you to say find out with me. Ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Find out. Everybody here, I want you to say, step out. And over here, you guys say, now you don't sound like you really mean watch out, okay? So when we get to watch out, you got to let me know, like, watch out like there's a burglar in the house, okay? So here we go. One, two, three. 
That's a little bit better. Somebody in the back actually got the idea, okay? So here's the first thing you want to understand about Zerubbabel's life. Find out where God is moving and get on board, okay? Just find out where God is moving and get on board. There are visible ways in Zerubbabel's life at his time in history where God was moving and it was evident and he just said, I'm going to get on board, okay? And I know you've only heard his name mentioned once, but this is the cool thing about teaching through the Bible, I'm going to be able to tie some things, some lessons that you have learned over the last year and a half here together in a way that's going to help you understand Zerubbabel's life, okay? So here is a verse, here's a passage that many of you have maybe even claimed as a life verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. See it highlighted there? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now you read that verse and think of all that God has planned for you. But that verse was initially written to this group of people who were coming out of Jerusalem, being captive and taken to Babylon when their city was on fire and their temple was destroyed. So just imagine momentarily like a massive, uh, uh, a massive damage to everything you ever owned. Your whole city's gone. It's on fire. And everything you've known is burned and your place of worship is burned too. And we see that because if you go back to that passage in Jeremiah, look at the verse that comes right before verse 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Okay, now stop for a second. You went from this place, a fixer-upper, to this place, a resort in Babylon. Now that doesn't seem like a bad trade-off, right? except your home was in the first place, and that's where you'd wanted to stay. Now, let me see if I can tie a couple things together. A few weeks ago, we talked about King Asa, and I had some of you stand up over here representing the northern kingdom, because the kingdom of Israel was initially united, but then it was divided, and the 10 tribes that were in the northern parts of the kingdom, and that's kind of north, that direction, had a bunch of kings, and all those kings were evil. And then I talked about the southern kingdom, which was combined of Judah and Benjamin. We'll come back to that in a second. And we found some of the good kings, four of them, over here that represented the nation of Judah. This group over here was taken into captivity uh, and scattered by Assyria in 722 BC. This group over here hung around till 586 BC. And then they were taken captive right here to Babylon. And if I could go as far back as our study of Daniel, you may remember that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those guys were young boys at the time, young men. They were taken because Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed this city, a Babylonian king, said this, listen, the way that I can control all of these people without the internet, okay, is here's what I'll do. I will take out their best and I will take them to my city and I will train them, their brightest and best. And I will inject into their city, after I destroy their culture, after I destroy their religion, after I destroy everything I can, I'll inject a whole bunch of other people who don't speak their language, who don't have their culture, and guess what? Nobody will get along, and therefore I can control all these territories. And that's exactly what he did. Except, you may remember when you read Jeremiah 29.10, that the Lord said, when 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will visit you and will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now, hold on, this is important. So what you have is a whole group of Israelites who are over here in Babylon. Are you ready for this? Zerubbabel is a Babylonian name, meaning the offspring of Babylon, which means he was born 
in Babylon, not in Israel. And that would make sense because he got 70 years to wait. And, you know, he's not going to be a 70 or 80 or 90-year-old man and lead the people out of, Israel, out, of, out of Babylon back to Israel. So he's young. He's born here. He knows nothing but this part of the world. Okay. He knows the resort life. And God is going to work in his heart to take him back. He said, well, why would anybody trade that life for the Jerusalem life, where the whole city's torn up. He's, got to help. He's going to have to help rebuild the temple. He's going to have to do all of that work. And the answer is because, help me out over here, what were you supposed to say? One more time. Find out what God is doing and get on board. And that's exactly what Zerubbabel did. Because there was a Babylonian empire that was taken over by the media Persian empire. He grew up in the Babylonian Empire, but it was taken over by the media Persian Empire. And now you're ready for that passage we started with this morning in Ezra, chapter 1. Here's what it says. Thus said Cyrus, the king of Persia. By the way, Cyrus is not a Bible king. He's a pagan king, okay? He's not, he's not a, God, a king that believes in the God of creation. But you say, well, why does he say the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build up the house of Jerusalem, which is in Judah? And the answer for that is that he found himself in the book of Isaiah. That's right. Clear back in the book of Isaiah, this is what we read. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by himself, who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd. He shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now look at verse chapter 45, verse 1. Thus the Lord says to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue the nations. And that's why Cyrus says, listen, the Lord, um, the Lord told me I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to send everybody back to Jerusalem. You say, wait a minute. Hold on. Here's the Babylonian Empire. A new king comes in in a really big empire. He, the big fish eats the smaller fish, and then a bigger fish eats that fish. Okay? That's what's happening here. Cyrus is a king who knows nothing at all about Israel, but he finds his name in the book of Isaiah. You say, well, that's not a big deal. Oh, yes, it is. Here's why it's a big deal. Because Cyrus makes this decree in 516 B.C., but Isaiah prophesied in 700 B.C., nearly 200 years earlier. This is the equivalent of you going over an independence hall and uh, pulling down the Declaration of Independence and finding your name in the Declaration of Independence. Okay. Like, that's how this is. This kingdom, the fact that Jerusalem has to be rebuilt, it hasn't even been destroyed when Isaiah's writing. And yet Isaiah singles out Cyrus hundreds of years before he's born and said, this is what Cyrus will do. This is what happens. I want you to see this. When God, that's why I say, you want to check out when God is visibly active, jump on board, right? Don't wait around for that. And that's why in Ezra, we read this, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Cyrus gives God credit because he sees his name. And you can just imagine what it was like. Somebody digging through the scrolls that had been carried over from Jerusalem, uh, over, and they've been waiting around for, uh, for a couple hundred years, for 70 years. They've been waiting around for 70 years. All of a sudden, Cyrus opens those things up and finds his name. Right? And he says, hey, who was writing about this? Is this yesterday's paper or what? And they say, uh, that was written 200 years ago. Uh, why is my name in there? Because God is actively working and has been actively working. So find out where God is moving and get on board. Okay? Find out where God is moving and get on board. Now, those of you in this section, just give me that sentence because you're going to have to learn it and repeat it, okay? Say it with me. One, two, three. 
Okay, a little bit with a little bit more aggression than that. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. That's right. So let me ask you the question. Where is God moving? Where is God moving in your connection group, in your church, in a ministry that you're a part of, in a missionary's life that you're connected to? Where is God moving? Is he moving in your office place someplace? Students, is he moving with maybe just a couple of you in your school? Are you meeting? Are you praying together? Where is God moving? Because wherever God is moving, just jump on board. This is exactly what Zerubbabel does. He, he doesn't wait around. He says, uh, listen, you need volunteers to go back? I'm in. I'm in. I'll go back. And whatever age he was, probably fairly youthful still, because he's got some time he's going to spend in Jerusalem. He says, I'll go. And God not only sends him, but God has him lead nearly some 40-some thousand people back. You say, well, that's pretty cool, 40,000 people. Yeah, but it's more than that. They got 600 miles to travel, and they're going to travel up the Euphrates River. They got to go out of the way because you can't drift away from the water or you're not going to last very long. And then they come down from the north, down into Jerusalem, which is totally destroyed. But this is the thing Zerubbabel knows. He knows that God is working. And he found that out, and he just jumps on board. Here's the second one. Step out on faith. Don't wait for your fear to subside. Okay? So that's this group here. Say that with me. One, two, three. Step out on faith. Don't wait for your fear to subside. That's right. Step out on faith. If you have your Bibles, look with me at Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. For one of the first things that happens, now just picture this. After 70 years, you come back to your old house, and it's totally torn up. There's somebody else living in it, and they're not even of your nationality. They just moved into your house while you were out of your house. Okay? That's how this is. And when you come back to where the temple was, Solomon's beautiful temple was, you see nothing. It's just rubble. It's just been destroyed. And that's how it's been sitting for 70 years. There's probably trees growing up out of it and stuff, just weeds growing and everything because nobody's been able to rebuild the temple because nobody had authority to rebuild the temple. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, one of the first things Zerubbabel does, and we read this in Ezra chapter 3, verse 2, then arose Jeshua, the son of Zozadak, now that's going to be the priest, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinmen, that's going to be the political arm, that's Zerubbabel's part. And they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So the first thing they do when they come to Jerusalem is they say, we don't, we're not ready to build the temple yet, but we can at least build the altar. And they start to make sacrifices. You say, well, that's cool. Like, that probably brought people together. Look at this next verse. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. This is an incredible step of faith. You have come back into your town. You're a little skittish, Right? You don't know anybody. None of them speak your language. Somebody, somebody else is in control of everything else that's going on there. Somebody else is living in your house. And, and there you are, and, and, and they have control of your city. And the first thing you do is you build an altar and invite people to worship. And not only that, they offered burnt offerings morning and evening. They didn't do it kind of behind the scenes. They just built the altar and immediately started 
every, every morning, every evening, offering the burnt offerings, just like they would have done before. It's an incredible step of faith. It's a reminder that you have to step out on faith. Don't wait for your fears to subside. Now, for just a moment, I know that, um, that we all experience some degree of fear. There's something in your world that you're afraid of or maybe a person you're afraid of. As long as you wait on that fear to subside, you'll never move forward. Zerubbabel teaches us just the opposite, that we step out on faith, we don't wait for our fears to subside. Nelson Mandela captured it this way, courage is not the absence of fear, courage is acting in spite of your fear. This is what faith looks like. We, we don't wait till we're not afraid. We engage immediately. And maybe a cleaner way of saying it, even regarding uh, Zerubbabel's life, is this, a godly response towards fear is this, depend on the Lord and take steps of obedience by faith. Stop worrying about what you're afraid of with the anxiety, whatever you're anxious with, just stop with that and say, okay, what has God asked me to do? The first thing I know is wherever he's moving, I'm on board. The second thing I know is I'm going to operate by faith and not by fear. I'm going to step out on faith. I will not simply wait for my fears to subside. And that's exactly what Ezra does. Step out on faith. Don't wait for your fears to subside. Okay. Now, I already, I already kind of unpacked for you. Find out where God is moving. Get on board. Here's the application for step out on faith. Just what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What have you not done yet? Who have you not talked to yet? What have you not stretched out and reached for yet that you believe God is asking you to do? The world is full of opportunities where God is moving. Get on board. But if you sit back and say, listen, frankly, Phil, it's too risky. Okay. I can't do that. It, it's too costly. I planned my life out. It, it's too much. I can't, I can't really make that decision. I just want to remind you, that is not a life of faith. Zerubbabel takes 40,000 people back to his hometown, and the first thing he does is set up an altar, knowing good and well that he could be executed for setting up the altar. And, and the Bible acknowledges they're afraid. They're afraid of the people that are there. They don't even know who those people that are there. They're afraid, and yet they step out on faith. It's a remarkable, remarkable story. Here's your last one. Watch out. Watch out for adversaries both inside and outside. This is such a wonderful illustration of how life should work. We find out where God's moving, we get involved. We step out on faith, we don't wait for our fear to, to, to subside, we just step out on faith and do what God's asked us to do. But, but just because we do that doesn't mean we're not attentive to where the adversaries are, because there's adversaries. And I'm going to give you three of them in Zerubbabel's life and then we're done. Negativity, compromise, discouragement. In Zerubbabel's life, you find all three of these active. Negativity, compromise, discouragement. In fact, if you're in the book of Ezra, just look with me at uh, chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 12. Before we get there, just let me kind of unpack one more thing for you. He builds the altar. There's no cell phone coverage going back to Babylon. He's out here on his own. He's 600 miles away from all the authority that the king gave him, and, and, and he's out there operating. After he builds the altar, he gets together with Joshua, and he says, listen, not the Joshua of, of Moses' time, but another Joshua, okay? He gets together with Joshua, and they decide that it's time to rebuild the temple. 
Now, you'd think that's a pretty cool thing, right? Like we're going to rebuild the temple. We have some gold and silver and stuff that was all given to us back in Babylon because people supported our effort to build the house of God. So let's build the house of God. Okay. And the first thing they do is they lay in the foundation. Right? And two things happen when they lay in the foundation. There's yelling and cheering and screaming and there's weeping. Let me talk with you about the weeping for a second. Negativity comes from those who remember the past selectively. Negativity comes from those who remember the past selectively. Now, I'm not a young man. I'm old enough to remember what it was like when we laid in the foundation here at this building, okay? And I remember what it was like to, uh, to see the whole building laid out, and we had this wing, the sanctuary, and the children's and office wing, and that wasn't what went in first. What went in first was the gymnasium. It was probably the simplest part. And I stood on the opening of that foundation where the holes were, and they were about to pour concrete, with, uh, with um, one of the founders of Fellowship Bible Church. I wasn't a founder. God raised up people from our community. He's since gone on to be with the Lord, and he stood on the edge of that, of that opening where they were about to pour concrete, and he wept. Okay. But here's why he wept. He said to me, Pastor Phil, when we started this church, I would have thought this, I would have been so grateful if this was the size building we were going to build, and this is only a third of the building we're going to build. What God had done was had exploded something that was far bigger than what he expected, and that's why he wept. What if I had said, um, what if I had said at that stage something negative, okay? Like, you got to be kidding me, this isn't that big a deal. I just remember watching him thinking, like, I'm in awe of what God is doing because here's a man who had an idea with some other men and women in in Gloucester County a number of years ago, and and I'm watching God bring it to fruition for him. Here's what I want you to see about the people that stood on the side of the temple when the foundation went in. And all the people shouted with great joy when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of father's household, here it comes, Old men who had seen the first house wept with loud voice when they saw the foundation. You said, why did they weep? Here it comes. Sadness is mixed with rejoicing, for some of the very old remembered the former temple and believed that this new one would not match the former temple's glory. Okay, now just stop there for a second. I just want to note something in the text. These were old men who had seen something before. And that's why I said earlier, negativity comes from those who remember the past selectively. They remembered Solomon's temple, but really, could they have remembered Solomon? Okay. Like the man who taxed the living daylights out of them? Like, could they remember Solomon, the man who had thousand, a thousand plus women who did numerous things that God had asked him not to do? Why did they not remember that part? Okay. Because when negativity works, it, it has a selective memory. Now, this is really important. Your memory also is selective. That is why when you have a, you know, a spat in your, in your family or in your marriage, you start to bring up stuff, but you don't bring up all the good stuff. You just bring up the bad stuff, right? Because whenever we have negativity working, it's harboring and remembering selectively, and it's dropping out some of the other stuff, and it's remembering only selectively, and that's why it's negative. The point is this, that we would do well when we look back to remember both the positive things that God had done and the negative things that had happened as a result of our sinfulness. But 
It doesn't work like that. And it didn't work like that for these men standing at the foundation. That's why I say you've got to watch out for adversaries. They're without and they're within. That would have wiped me out. I'm just going to tell you right now. If it would have been a time for great rejoicing and people would have been crying and said, just imagine momentarily when I stood on there with Roy, on the edge of the foundation with Roy, and he's saying to me, this is way more than we ever anticipated. And I, and, and I start to say, oh, this is so pathetic. Okay. Because I remember something from some other time that this is just pathetic. Okay. I probably, if that would have been me and someone would have responded like that, I'd have said, okay, I need to find someplace else to go. But that is not the case with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel says, we're going to build even though people are weeping because they don't like it, even though people are singing and rejoicing because they do like it, we're going to build. And he continues to build that temple. And note this. Here's the second adversary. Uh, Compromise. Compromise. Compromise comes from those who offer an easier way than God's. So he's got to overcome the negativity of some older guys hanging around the foundation saying it's nothing like it was when we saw Solomon's temple. But not only that, he's got to overcome and watch out for compromise. And I'm going to show you that in Ezra chapter 4. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's house and said to them, let us build with you. Okay, now those two things don't work together, right? Adversaries don't come and say, let us help you, okay? Adversaries oppose you. So you say, why are they saying, let us help you? Look at the rest of the text. For we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here, okay? Now, remember what happened. Um, There was a king, the Assyrians, they moved people into the northern part of Israel, and as, as the southern portion got carried off. These people moved down in and started living there. They're not Israelites. They're not followers of God, but they claim to be here. Okay. This is how compromise works. God had said, Zerubbabel, go, build the temple, build the temple, and I provided what you need here from Cyrus and all these other people. They're sending you back with gold and silver. And all of a sudden you get there and you're looking at this task and you're saying, we could really use some help. And some people step up and say, let us help you. And look how he responds. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, the rest of the heads of the father's house in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building the house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. He says, listen, you can't participate in this because you're not really of us, even though you're acting like you are. In fact, there would have been a cool way, I was thinking about this, for these adversaries to get on board, but it wasn't by saying, let us help you, we're one of you. It would have been for them to say, in repentance, we want to worship your God. We want to meet your God. Your God is greater than any kind of God we've ever worshipped, and we just want to worship your God. And then the Old Testament would show, in the lives of people like Rahab and others, that they could have been invited in to the nation of Israel. But to step up and say, hey, hey, we're just one of you. We're just like you. Let us help you. When all the while you're an adversary is not the way to go. But it is a way for compromise. And maybe there's a place in your life where God himself has told you what he wants you to do and other people are offering you an easier way than that. I'm just going to encourage you. Compromise is an adversary, right? 
There's one final one. There's one final one. Here it is. Discouragement comes when action takes longer than expected. That's right. Discouragement comes when action takes longer than expected. Now, just trust me on this, but you can read it on your own when you go home. When you start reading Ezra 3, 4, and 5, you discover that there was a time where they had to stop building. In fact, um, they had to stop building because those very adversaries who said, let us help you, when they said, no, you can't help us, they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you shouldn't be building. And they write a letter to the king back over 600 miles away, the pagan king. They write a letter to the pagan king that says, you know, you need to know something about this city. If you let them build a temple, they're probably going to be a rebellious people. They're probably going to be an upheaval. You probably won't be able to control. You probably better stop this. And that king says, okay, let's stop it. And he writes a letter and says, let's stop it. And welcome to bureaucracy. You only thought it was a New Jersey thing. It's been around for a long time, okay? So here's what happens. That letter comes back, and that letter comes to Zerubbabel, and so they have to stop the building. And this is really a remarkable thing. Look what we see in Ezra 4. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. For 16 years, from 536 BC to 520 BC, work on the rebuilding was halted. Just imagine this. Foundation went in and then it stops. Okay. For 16 years, now, just for a moment, remember where you were 16 years ago, how young you were 16 years ago. Would you have been willing to wait for 16 years believing that God was actively working? Would you have been willing to wait that long? Because Rebel does. And then notice something that happens in Ezra chapter 5. The prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, see, these are Bible writers the son of Idu, they prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem, that's Zerubbabel and his guys, in the name of God of Israel who was over them. They said, listen, and if you read Haggai and Zechariah, you see them say things like, start building, okay, start building. And so these people looked back at the word and said, okay, that's what we better do. And then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealiatelia, and Jeshua, the son of Jazadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. The word of God inspired them to start building again, and they quit waiting. Just by way of reminder, these are adversaries. Negativity, compromise, discouragement. Now, I'm not telling you that you should necessarily avoid the people who are discouraging your life or the, or you can't just suddenly say, okay, I'm not going to talk to any of these compromisers anymore or people who are negative. You have to interact, right? But I am warning you to watch out for the impact of those elements. And if you know what they work like, okay, they remember past selectively, they offer an easier way than God's, it's going to take longer than expected. You're going to be more prepared to handle the difficulties. Okay. One more thing and then we're done. Just by way of reminder, review with me how we lead during difficulty. That's Zachariah's life. Three things. Over here, help me out on this side. Find out. Pretty good. A little mumbly, but we'll, we'll take it. Okay. Step out. Okay, here we go. Watch out. Okay, we got it. Okay. This is how... A book of the Bible that almost feels archaic isn't archaic at all. It reminds us that where God is moving, we want to get on board. It tells us, listen, when we're afraid, we step out on faith. And it tells us to walk and watch out cautiously for those who are around us. There's a couple of thoughts for you in wrapping it up. Did you realize 
that while those older men stood on the edge of the temple and wept, Zerubbabel's temple would last far longer than Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed in roughly 400 years, yet Zerubbabel's temple would still be standing and kind of be, you get a refurbishment with Herod, but, but it would still, the foundation would still be standing all the way into the New Testament where Christ comes into that previous temple and foundation. You just don't know what's happening in the future if you find out, step out, watch out now. And let me show you one other thing. We're getting ready for Christmas, right? When you open up the book of Matthew, this is what you'll read, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah. If you jump down 12 verses, here's what you'll read. Jacoyana was the father of Sheliatelia, and Sheliatel was the father of, say it with me, and look at this. A few verses later, verse 16, same genealogy, and Jacob, father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, say it with me, Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. That Zerubbabel's name actually finds his way into the genealogy of Christ. Remarkable. He doesn't come to Jerusalem saying, I'm in the kingly line, let me take charge. He comes to the kingly line and says, I want to be involved where God's involved. I'm going to step out on faith, and I'm not going to be discouraged when adversaries come because I believe God is working. Here's the thing. You do not simply, our our memories are selective of the past, but they cannot speak with authority to the future. So when you're struggling with fear and anxiety and those kinds of things, you're not remembering your past fully and how God was faithful, but you are overconfident that you know what will happen in the future, and you don't. That's why we walk by faith, even when we struggle with fear. That's the life of Zerubbabel. Father, it's been a privilege to look to your word this morning, to be reminded in, a, in this uh, special way that a man's life that's thousands and thousands of years old can still give us instruction today. And it offers that instruction because of his dependence on you, because of his confidence in you, because he wasn't satisfied to live in a Babylon retreat center, but he was desirous and excited to be a part of where you were moving and where you were working. And he stepped out by faith. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for instructing us. Thank you for helping us see in your word truths that help and inspire us to live this week. And Lord, just a special word of prayer for those who struggle with fear, who struggle with past memories, who struggle with anxiety this morning, who struggle with concerns about their future. May we look back and remember, even as we've sung, the goodness of God is with us. And we are thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.